please pray with me. And Father, now as we come before you on this Lord's Day, in circumstances that we wish uh, did not occur, nevertheless, we thank you that you have brought us here, giving us the means in which we can come and worship you and to sit under your word. Father, we just pray for your enduring spirit to work in our hearts so that we could have the resilience, the faithfulness, and the wherewithal to keep pursuing the ways of God. Father, <clears throat> these past two years have been a real uh, stretch to our spirits and to our minds. But Lord, we trust that you will be faithful in giving us all that we need to endure and to be patient and to wait for all the blessings that are so readily available to us to be unleashed upon us. And so now, Father, we pray that you would speak to us as we sit under your feet to hear from your servant and that you will bless it in spite of him. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, as Christians, we are taught over and over that you and I are broken sinners and therefore we live in a broken world. And of course, you don't have to be a Christian to agree with that sentiment because after all, aren't we taught in our society that to err is human or no one is quote unquote perfect? Yes, of course, we all know this. And so it shouldn't really come as a surprise that as we attempt to live life together, whether as a group of friends, raising a family together or doing church as a community, that the inevitable happens, which is at some point, inevitably, you will hurt, you will wrong, you will sin against someone, and conversely, most definitely, you will be wrong, you will be uh, offended, you will be hurt, you will be sinned against. And yet here's what's so stupefying. So many Christians, once they are hurt or offended or sinned against, act as if they've been thrown a massive curveball that they thought could never be possible. Yeah, it's as if they're a victim of some massive fraud. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times people have come up to me sharing about uh, their struggles about someone hurting them or sinning against them, and they would say something like, Pastor, I just simply cannot believe that this could ever be done against me. I cannot believe that this could ever happen to me. To which I would respond, are you kidding? Have you not been paying attention? Have you not been reading your Bible? Have you not been studying the Word? Listen, the Bible makes it clear that if you want to have a group of wonderful friends, if you want to have a happy marriage, if you want to be able to enjoy communal festivities like Thanksgiving, then you need to do the thing that those activities, those interactions require. And that is being willing to forgive, being ready to forgive. Because if you think you can enjoy those kind of social interactions, those kinds of deep fellowship and relationships without the power of forgiveness, then you are sorely mistaken and you're headed for a very, very rude awakening. We're finishing today the sermon series that we've been on for quite some time called the In-Person Church. And in this series, we have been taking a look at the various commands in the New Testament that all have the phrase, one another in them. And today, we end this series by looking at the one another command that I believe is the most relevant in this season that we're in as we go into Thanksgiving and the holidays, and that is forgiving one another. A willingness to forgive each other, a willingness to forgive the people in your life. Now, in all my years of studying this topic of forgiveness, I have come to find that there are two real barriers, two common barriers as to why people struggle with forgiveness so much. The first barrier is a misunderstanding. 
You see, many people think that they know what forgiveness is and what it entails, when in reality they have no clue what true forgiveness is. And because of their ignorance, they find within themselves really struggling to forgive. That's the first barrier. The second barrier is one of unwillingness. And these are the kinds of folks who may understand what forgiveness is and what it entails, and yet they don't care because they find within them an unwillingness, a disgruntled a spirit that is not motivated whatsoever to extend forgiveness to the people of their lives. So these two barriers fall into two categories. One is a barrier of the mind. The other is a barrier of the heart. And these are the two areas that we're going to take a look at and the two points that we have in today's sermon, and they are as follows. First, we're going to talk about the three common misunderstandings that keep us from forgiving one another, and then we're going to end it with the one person who can enable us to forgive one another. The three common misunderstandings that keep us from forgiving, and then we're going to talk about the one person who enables us and motivates us to forgive. So let's begin with the first point. The three common misunderstandings that keep us from forgiving each other. You know, as a pastor in all my years of observing the behaviors of those in the church, I have noticed that there are three common misunderstandings that people have that inhibit them from forgiving. The first misunderstanding is the belief that says forgiveness excuses people of their sin. The second misunderstanding is the idea that forgiveness is supposed to be unconditional. I'll go into that in just a moment. And then also a third misunderstanding is that forgiveness is all about you feeling like doing it. That's the only way you can truly forgive. You have to feel like doing it. So let's take a look at these three common misunderstandings, begin with the first one. And that is the idea that forgiveness excuses people of their sins to where they don't suffer the consequences of their sins. Read again with me verse 25 of our passage where it says, therefore having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth. Now you see that phrase, speak the truth? Many people interpret that as simply Paul saying, hey guys, stop lying to each other as if he's simply echoing the ninth commandment of thou shalt not lie but if you read our passage in the context of its fullness you'll come to find that paul is saying way more than just don't lie let me explain why if you ever study the bible one thing you quickly pick up is that god hates lying i mean he really really hates lying and why does he hate lying because that is the fundamental calling card. That is the modus operandi, the MO of his great adversary, who is also our great adversary, the devil, Satan. Yeah, this is evident by the fact that he is known by the names of lying, such as the deceiver or the father of all lies. Do you guys remember <clears throat> how in the Adam and Eve story, Satan showed up in the form of a serpent and he caused our first parents to fall into sin, causing the massive downfall of all of creation making them responsible for all the pain and misery that we're going through even now? And how did Satan cause our parents to do all that, to cause that much destruction? All through a lie. Yeah, he deceived our first parents into disobeying God, okay? And what was the main message of his lie, which is really the fundamental message of all lies everywhere? It's basically this. Sin has no consequence. The fundamental message that Satan says in all of his lies, which is the same message we say in all of our lies, is that sin has no consequences or that you can avoid the consequences of sin. But when Paul says in our passage, speak the truth, he's basically saying that is absolutely wrong. No, the opposite is true. Sin always has consequences. In fact, Paul would even say that sin has unavoidable consequences, even for those who've been forgiven. Case in point, you guys remember the story of King David? 
You know, the famous monarch who ruled the nation of Israel, considered the greatest king Israel ever had? Well, if you ever study his story, you know that at the peak of his political career, he had a massive moral scandal. Massive downfall, where he slept with another man's wife, Bathsheba, and to cover over his crime, he orchestrated the murder of the husband, Uriah, right? And when he was confronted by God for the crimes and the sins that he committed, he repented, he asked God for forgiveness, and God indeed forgave him. But did God spare David from suffering the consequences of his sin? No. No, no, David absolutely suffered the consequence of his sins in the form of him losing not one, not two, but three of his sons and his kingdom, his dynasty being forever tainted because of the crimes and the sins that he's committed. Now, you know what this tells us? This tells us that you and I have been incorrectly taught or many of us have come to the incorrect conclusion about what forgiveness is. Because many of us have been taught to think that real forgiveness means that a person doesn't have to suffer the consequences of their sins. But that is not biblical forgiveness. Do you know what biblical forgiveness is? It's basically this. It's when you choose to not end or to cut off a relationship from a person who sinned against you. Let me say it again. Biblical forgiveness is when you choose not to end or to break a relationship with someone who has sinned against you. But with that said, that does not mean that the relationship stays the same once you have forgiven someone, right? It's not as if the relationship goes back to what it was before they sinned against you as you forgive. No, it doesn't stay the same. It can't stay the same. Why? Well, let me see if I can explain with a silly illustration. Let's say my oldest daughter, Kara, who's 11 now, but let's say when she turns 16, decides to take my Toyota minivan without permission on a joyride down Bell Boulevard. Something I completely understand because that is an awesome vehicle, okay? But let's say because of her inexperience behind the wheel, she completely totals it. She's fine, but she totaled the car, right? And then Kara comes up to me with tears streaming down her face like, Daddy, Daddy, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Please forgive me, Daddy, please. As her father, am I going to forgive her? Of course I am. But you know what else I'm going to do? I'm going to make sure she gets a job and she pays for at least half of the damages or in half of replacing that vehicle. Now, some of you are going to hear me like, Pastor, that doesn't sound like you forgave her at all. Oh, yes, I did. Because she's still my daughter. I still have her in my life. I still feed her. I still clothe her. I still provide for her. I still pray for her. I still have her in my life to where I am actively parenting her. But you know, I'm also ensuring that she understands that there are consequences to her sin. Because let's just imagine if I didn't do that, okay? Let's say that when Kara comes up to me, I say to her, you know what, honey? Don't worry about it. You're, you're scot-free. Don't worry. No consequences, all right? Dad's going to just pay for all the damages, okay? What's going to happen the next time that brand new car pulls in to the driveway? Kara goes off again, joyriding on the bell, right? Why? Because I have failed her as a father. I have not spoken the truth to her. In fact, I have spoken the lies of Satan by essentially telling her that there are no consequences to sins whatsoever. And by laying that false lie of a deception as a foundation to her thinking, that will naturally lead her into falling into the second misunderstanding that many people have with regard to forgiveness. And that is forgiveness is unconditional. Have you guys heard that before? Have you guys heard that taught at church before? Forgiveness is supposed to be unconditional. It doesn't matter, you know, how that person responds or reacts to you forgiving them. There should be no strings attached. There should be no conditions put on that person. You should just forgive them unilaterally. But is that true? Is that biblical? 
consider what it says in verse 28 of our passage. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Here, Paul gives us an example of what should be happening to a person once they are forgiven. And what is that? Change. Change. Yeah. When someone asks for you to forgive them, when they ask for a transaction of you to forgive them, in order for that transaction to be complete, it requires of them to change, to be transformed. You see? Where a thief no longer steals, where a drunk person stops getting drunk, where a promiscuous person stops being promiscuous. See, the Bible tells us that when God forgave us, He did so not just so that He could forgive us, but so that we could be changed for the better. Specifically, that we would change to be more like Jesus Christ. And yet, here's what's so astounding. I am so discouraged when I see Christians who hear the amazing good news of God forgiving them, and they interpret that as a license to sin, right? They see it as a, a free get-out-of-hell ticket card, and they use that ticket as a free hall pass to indulge in every possible disgusting, perverted, wicked behavior that God forbids in His Word. Because after all, God's going to forgive me anyway. God's already forgiven me, right? Have you ever thought that way before? Have you known Christians who thought that way? Let me tell you right now, that is not biblical forgiveness because real biblical forgiveness is one in which it is conditioned upon the person who is being forgiven to change for the better to or at least want to change for the better in order for that forgiveness to be intact for that forgiveness transaction to be completed you see so practically speaking let's say a person comes up to you who wronged you they sinned against you and they say can you forgive me you need to make it clear what is required of them for your forgiveness transaction to them to be complete. They must be ready and willing to change, okay? They must be ready and willing to change. If you have a situation where you've been forgiving someone for the same sins for years, maybe even for decades, chances are that person doesn't want you really to forgive them. No, what they really want is for you to enable them to keep on sinning, okay? and to not make them feel bad about it. Because if you don't, they make you feel bad about it. They make you feel guilty. Or they might say things like, hey man, I thought you were a Christian. Aren't you guys supposed to forgive people like me? Man, you are a terrible Christian. You are a terrible example to your faith. Have you ever had that kind of nonsense thrown at you, Christian? I know I have. And you, like me, have experienced the guilt, the unnecessary shame, to where we begrudgingly forgive that person. We just, you know, let them go and let them keep on being who they are. But what happens as a result? Not only do you end up being bitter towards that person, but you end up being bitter towards the very idea of forgiveness, where instead of responding with a sense of joy and gratitude and praises to God that forgiveness even exists, you get disgusted by the idea of forgiveness. Is that the kind of reaction that you think God wants for us, especially when the core aspect of our faith is about forgiveness? No. So clearly this tells us that any idea that forgiveness is supposed to be unconditional is not correct. Okay? Now let's move on to the third common misunderstanding of forgiveness, and that is it's all based on how you feel. It's all based on your feelings. Let's read our passage again, starting in verse 29, where we read, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, 
that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, as you read through these verses with me, you'll notice that there's no reference to your feelings or the feelings of the person you're forgiving. No, the only feelings that are referred to here are God's feelings. Where Paul specifically says in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit of God. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us that the only feelings that matter in the context, in a situation of forgiveness, is God's feelings. And how does God feel about forgiveness? Well, he clearly tells us in his word. God wants his people, he wants you and me, Christian, to always have a posture, to always have an openness, to always have a willingness to offer forgiveness to those who need our forgiveness. Let me say that again. God says in his word that he wants his people to always be open, to always posture ourselves, to always be willing to extend forgiveness to those who need to be forgiven by us. And this is something you really need to get, Christian. Because so often we think that we can only forgive someone because we feel like forgiving them, right? I mean, isn't that what our society says? That you can only do something genuinely if you feel like doing it? And of course, I get what they mean by that. Because when you do something and you don't feel like doing it, people are going to accuse you of having no integrity, of being fake, of being disingenuous. And you don't want to be like that with something so important like forgiveness. So yes, I can't forgive until I feel like forgiving. But that's not what God's word tells us. And we're governed by God's word, not what society says. And God's word says that we are to go by what God feels about forgiveness, not how we feel about forgiveness. And God says we must be open and ready. And practically what this means is that we don't wait until we feel like forgiving. We just go ahead and forgive. Because here's the truth of the matter. If you wait till you feel like forgiving somebody, chances are you're never going to forgive them. No, no, no. Scripture says forgiveness is an act of faith. It is not an act of feelings. Take a listen to how one pastor, Gary, um, <clears throat> Gary Delashumit, how he puts it. He says this, quote, The Bible describes forgiveness primarily as a choice based on the truth, not as a feeling. I can choose against my feelings to lay down my right to exact revenge. I can choose against my feelings to serve my offender in love. True, God must empower me to do this, but he promises to do this as I turn to him in prayerful trust and obedience, end quote. Trust, excuse me, forgiveness is something you actively choose to do. It is not something you passively feel and therefore react to, okay? I mean, take a look at some of the words that Paul uses in the context of forgiveness. Talk, build up, put away, be kind, be tender. These are words of action. They're not words of emotions, okay? So there you have it. The three common misunderstandings that people have when it comes to forgiveness. Now, of course, after saying all this, I can't leave it there, right? Because here's the thing. I know many of you who are watching me right now, you know that these are incorrect understandings of forgiveness because you have a proper biblical view of forgiveness. You do. And yet it still doesn't change the fact that many of you have an unwilling spirit, no desire whatsoever to actually push through and to forgive the people in your life God is calling you to forgive. Because for you, you just feel 
that it's just it's just not possible let me give you an example uh, let's say you, you you have someone in your life who you need to forgive and they're suffering the consequences for their sins that doesn't move you to want to forgive them it doesn't matter that they're going through the consequences it furthermore it doesn't matter if they're willing to change if they're trying to change and it still doesn't matter that you know how God feels about forgiveness none of those factors are putting in you a willing spirit to forgive and so the question is what do people like you people like me too what do we do about this well to answer we go to my final point the one person who can make us want to forgive one another Let's read verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Here Paul tells us how we find the willingness to forgive. And notice he doesn't give us you know, a philosophy of forgiveness. He doesn't make an intellectual exercise out of it. He doesn't give us theories of forgiveness or the 12 steps towards forgiveness. Instead, he points to a person, a person who himself is the standard of forgiveness who is the very embodiment of forgiveness. He is the person of forgiveness, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? He is the second person of the mysterious Godhead. He is God and part of the triune God, right? He is God the Son. And God came into the world to become a mortal human being, Jesus Christ. Why? So that he could forgive you, right? That's what the gospel teaches us. But here's the thing. In order for Jesus to forgive you, it came at such a high cost to him. See, because in order for Jesus to forgive you, he had to be willing to be cut off from the most important relationship in his life ever, his relationship to the Father as he was dying on the cross for our sins, right? A relationship that you will not be cut off, a relationship that is the most crucial, the most important relationship of all, your relationship to God, a relationship that God had every right to forsake, a relationship he had every right to finish and to end and to destroy. But he won't because Jesus suffered the penalty for all of your sins by being cut off on your behalf as your Savior substitute. And because he had to go through that, you know what else that means? It means Jesus suffered the most painful, agonizing feelings of all. Feelings that none of your negative feelings could even compare to, even the feelings that keep you from wanting to forgive another person. Jesus suffered the worst feelings of all so that you would never have to suffer such agonizing feelings ever right that is what the gospel teaches us and he did all this because of his extravagant merciful forgiving love and once you understand that love and once you believe the message that embodies that message of love the gospel how could you ever possibly think that you're ever justified that you ever have the warrant of withholding forgiveness from those who have wronged you especially when you realize that the comparison of you sinning against God is so much greater than anyone sinning against you, right? How could you possibly think that you could withhold forgiveness in that kind of scenario? I mean, imagine for a moment if a person is in $4 trillion debt, just something outlandish. Just imagine if someone is in $4 trillion debt and the person that he's indebted to says then, you know what? I'm going to erase the debt. You can go and I do not hold this debt against you. Let's say a person receives that kind of forgiveness of debt. And then he turns around and he starts going after a person who owes him $4. Okay? Someone who owes him $4. And he's not willing to forgive that debt whatsoever. What's wrong with that guy? I'll tell you what's wrong. He doesn't understand the value of money. Right? 
That's also true for a person who claims to be a Christian and yet find themselves unwilling to forgive others. That person does not understand the value of forgiveness, okay? Because if he did, he would see how ridiculous him withholding forgiveness would be to the person that he's called to forgive when he considers how much God has forgiven him, you see? So let me ask you, you who claim to be a follower of Jesus, you who claim to be a Christian, do you know the value of forgiveness? Right? Which is another way of saying, do you believe the gospel? I mean, do you really understand it? Do you understand the extravagance of God's forgiving love for you through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross? If you do, then it's time to settle accounts. It's time to finally position yourself and prepare yourself to forgive the people in your life especially those who God is calling you to forgive, specifically those who have asked for your forgiveness, who have sought it out. You know, as we get ready to go into the holiday seasons, no doubt you want to go into it fully prepared and fully ready to enjoy it to the full. Make sure that you can by doing what is the most important, the most foundational thing in order for such festivities to truly be experienced have a posture, have a preparation, have a willingness, have the will to forgive the people who are seeking it out right now. My hope and prayer is that that would be the beginning of this new year coming up, a year of settling accounts and moving forward with a community of love and restoration. Amen? Amen. Would you please pray with me? Father, we ask now that as we have heard this very challenging but also comforting message. Lord, I pray that you will give all of us in here a willingness and a readiness to forgive. And let it begin also by making sure that we have a proper understanding of what biblical forgiveness is and what it is not. Father, many of us have been unnecessarily grieved and felt guilty, shamed and filled with such sorrow because we have not properly understood forgiveness. My hope and prayer that this message has untangled those misunderstandings and have clarified and settled convictions in our hearts so that we can properly forgive those who truly want it. And Lord, we pray that uh, as we are confronted by these people, that we, by the power of your spirit, would be enabled to forgive as we reflect on the amazing forgiving love you've given to us through Jesus Christ. Father, let, we, let us go into this new year with a clean slate, with all settled accounts, so we can live in this world as broken as it is, with such joy and genuine thanksgiving. Hear us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.